Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. I am presenting a series of programs on the book of Acts, and today's program is probably one of the most important programs that I'm going to be presenting on this subject of the book of Acts, because in this program I'm going to be addressing Acts chapter 15. In Acts chapter 15, we probably have some of the most significant issues that the early church was dealing with described here. I believe that this is probably the most important chapter, with the exception of maybe chapter 10 and chapter 11, because in Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11, the early church actually discovered that a Gentile could really be saved before first becoming a Jew. But in this chapter, this chapter reveals that the early church was really struggling with the issues of how do we now live now that we have been saved. This is a very important subject, how should we now live? This leads us to some very important questions that the church has been dealing with ever since the church actually founded in the first century. For the last 2,000 years of church history, we have been dealing with a number of subjects, a number of doctrines, a number of issues that have been competing with one another. Many people have struggled over these issues over the course of time. I sincerely believe that a proper perspective of this chapter is necessary in order to first understand the struggle but also to see where a solution can be found to just about every concern with regards to living the Christian life. And so I sincerely believe that this chapter is very important. Now, having said that, I want you to know, I want you to understand up front that my position on this chapter and the way that I'm going to present it is revolutionary from my perspective. And what I mean by that is that this is something that has never been done before, and also this is something that is going to go against just about every theology that has been developed in the history of the church and that many people believe to this day that I will be taking a position that is very different from other people. And I'll tell you up front that the position that I'm taking is that the people in the early church did not agree on everything, that the apostles in Jerusalem, the elders in Jerusalem, did not agree with the apostle Paul, and the apostle Paul and people who studied under him did not completely agree with the people in Jerusalem, that that is the premise that I am taking when approaching this chapter and subsequent chapters as well. This is a very unusual position. In most cases, people are going through what I call a lot of theological gymnastics in order to try and reconcile these differences. But in this case, I am going to be taking the position that there were differences and those differences were never reconciled. Now, when taking this kind of a position... This means that this theology that I am presenting is very different from other theologies that have been presented. There are two very popular theologies, for example. The first one is covenantal theology, and then the other one, which I think is probably more popular, is dispensational theology, which is a set of theological principles in terms of how we are going to look at the development of the early church and how we reconcile some of the differences in the book of Acts. And many people find these theologies to be very valuable to them because they can see the confusion, they can see the uncertainty, and these are ways of reconciling 
the differences that exist there. And I certainly am very familiar with these theologies. I do believe that these theologies are very good conclusions if we were to look at the scriptures from an academic perspective. And of course, I know academic exercises very well. I've been a university professor for many years, and so I can tell you how to look into a text, how to look into a book, or how to look into a paper and analyze it from an academic perspective and come to various conclusions. And I do sincerely believe that these two theological perspectives, these two theological positions of dispensational theology and covenantal theology are very good conclusions if you were to approach the scriptures from the point of view of an academic exercise. But I sincerely believe that in this case, the best approach to consider this text is not from the perspective of an academic exercise, but instead is to look at this text from the perspective of the people in terms of what they believed at that time, that is what they taught, what they understood. Even though there was some disagreements, there were beliefs that people held to. And to also understand it from a historical perspective by seeing the chains of events take place as people would discover who the Lord their God is and what he actually accomplished for them. And this is a very different approach that I do not know of anybody actually taking. I do sincerely believe that it is very difficult to see it from this perspective. I think it's very difficult for a person to come to the conclusions that I'm coming to if they do not have a clear understanding of the beliefs of the people the beliefs of Pharisaical Judaism, Sadduceical Judaism, Hellenistic Judaism. If you don't really understand these beliefs very well, then it's very easy to superimpose our perspective into the scriptures onto the people without looking at what they thought first and understanding the scriptures from the perspective of the people who were going through these events and who were discussing these things at the time when these issues were originally being discussed. Another reason why I believe people find it very difficult to understand or even appreciate the perspective that I present here is because there are a lot of theological positions, there are a lot of doctrines, there are a lot of beliefs that people have today that they are going to have to let go of if I'm right. If I am correct in the way that I present this, if I am correct in terms of what is actually being said here and what was taking place here, then people are going to have to let go of a lot of preconceived ideas. They're going to have to let go of a lot of years of beliefs. And what I mean by that is that people have believed things for many years and they will be unwilling to let go of these beliefs because of the cost of the embarrassment of suggesting that perhaps they were wrong. This is a very challenging issue because then I'm dealing with the pride of individuals, not the issues of what is true and what is not true. But instead, I'm dealing with pride. And this makes it very complicated, and for this reason, I want to say this up front so you're not taken by surprise, and so you're going to be fully aware that what I am presenting is very different, and that you should at least consider it as a possibility, and not let your preconceived doctrines prevent you from considering this possibility, because you're going to think, well, if he is right, if he is true, then I might have to let go of this, and I might have to let go of this, and I might have to consider this. These are very important concerns. Now, for me to say that there was a disagreement in the scriptures, the normal reaction that I get when I present this is that people will say, well, then, Aaron, you're suggesting that there is a contradiction in the scriptures, especially when dealing with the arguments between James and Paul. For example, are we justified by faith or are we justified by faith and works? This is an important issue. As you look into the letters of Paul 
and James and see differences between the two, there are many ways that people have tried to reconcile these differences, and I'm very familiar with all the ones that I've been able to find with regards to how people can reconcile these differences. That's just fine. But what I'm suggesting is, is that instead of trying to reconcile the differences and going through the gymnastics of determining how we can reconcile the differences, instead consider the fact that maybe there were differences that were never reconciled. And if I take that perspective, if that is true, if it's true that there were differences in terms of how people thought we should live our daily lives, if there were differences, then for us to try and reconcile the differences is instead going to degrade the credibility of the scriptures, because if there are differences, we should show that there are differences, and we should demonstrate that there are differences. We should recognize those differences, we should acknowledge them, and we should then go on in our studies recognizing that those exist. Otherwise, see, this is the problem. The problem is is that if there are differences, if there were differences between what people believed that were never reconciled, and you don't acknowledge that, then what you are going to do is you are going to present a contradiction. If you try to reconcile the doctrines of the church in Jerusalem and the doctrines that were promoted by the Apostle Paul, then you are going to create a contradiction. Instead, if you consider that there were differences, then you will support the validity of the scriptures and the integrity of the scriptures by at least acknowledging it and considering the scriptures from that perspective. Now, I did do a series of programs on this subject, and I would like to refer you to these programs where I discuss it in more detail. The series is called Faith Only or Faith and Works. It is a series of four programs that I produced. It's almost two hours worth of material where I address this subject from one end to the other. But in this program, I'm only going to be looking at this chapter, Acts chapter 15, and focus my attention on the events that are taking place here instead of getting into the greater impact or the greater importance of the discussion between Faith Only or Faith and Works. And so I believe it's important to mention that and to direct you to those programs. You can listen to those before going through this program or after this program. Either way, it's a good supplement to everything else that I am going to be presenting here in Acts chapter 15. Now here at the beginning of Acts chapter 15, what we have is we have the end of Paul's first missionary journey. He arrives in Antioch. And when he arrives in Antioch, it turns out that some people come up from Judea. This is described in Acts chapter 15, verse 1, where it says, Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And then in verse 2 it says, And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Okay, now here's the initial confrontation that I was referring to earlier. This is the initial confrontation that there are people who came down from Judea. Now these people who came from Judea, there are two ways to look at this. First of all, we can assume that these are renegade people who do not really subscribe to the teachings of the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem. That's certainly a possibility. I don't believe that that's a valid possibility, but it is a possibility nonetheless. The other possibility is is that they were truly representing the church in Jerusalem, that what they were communicating was what was being taught by the church in Jerusalem, by the apostles there in Jerusalem. That is a possibility. 
Now, the reason why I do not believe that these were renegade guys who came out of Jerusalem wanting to teach something different than what was being promoted there in Jerusalem is because the people encouraged Paul and Barnabas to go to Jerusalem, not these other men who came from Judea. If there was a question with regards to what the men from Judea were teaching, if there was a question with regards to the value or the validity of what they were teaching, then all they needed to do is just ask them, are you really representatives of the church in Jerusalem? And if they would say yes, then what are they going to do from there? Well, at this point, they would have to say that perhaps Paul and Barnabas do not know the truth. And so if Paul and Barnabas do not necessarily know the truth, then we need to send Paul and Barnabas to Judea to talk with the apostles about this, that the apostles will then discuss this subject with them and either set Paul and Barnabas straight, or they will set these other fellows who came from Judea straight. So that's the issue, and that's why I believe, this is why I believe these men who were coming from Judea did truly represent the beliefs of the people in Judea. This is just one of the reasons, of course. There are a few others, and I'll explain that in just a moment. But I believe that this is one of the reasons why. The reason why is because they sent Paul and Barnabas to Judea. They did not send these other men back to Judea to go and question the apostles and the elders there, but instead they decided to send Paul and Barnabas. Okay, now if this is the case, if this is true, then you have to consider that the church in Jerusalem may have been believing that a person did need to be circumcised, otherwise they could not be saved. Now what would that tell you about the church in Jerusalem? What would that really tell you about the apostles and the elders there in Jerusalem? Well, what would that tell you if I said that? If I said to you that you needed to be circumcised, otherwise you could not be saved? then I would hope that you would say to me, you know, Aaron, that sounds pretty good, but I personally believe that you need to mature a little bit more in your faith before you go and tell other people that you have to be circumcised, because we don't see that it's necessary for a person to be circumcised, especially when you go through the letters that Paul wrote. He said very clearly that you do not have to be circumcised to be saved. It's very clear in the New Testament. And so why, Aaron, would you be saying such a thing? So likewise, if you would say that to me, then should you not also consider that that's what you would say to the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem? It's a reasonable thing to say. Now, Please understand that just because the apostles and the elders may have this belief, and I'm not saying that they do quite yet, but if this is a consideration, if this is something that they do believe, I want you to understand that they can certainly still be saved. I personally held to that belief when I first got saved. It was a number of years. It was several years before I came to understand the real impact and the real implications of the gospel and the grace of God. Before that, I sincerely believed that a person should be circumcised. I did, and if you would have come to me back then, even though I would say that Jesus is definitely the Messiah, I would tell you you definitely have to be circumcised as well. And so I can relate to this to a certain degree. I can understand that people do mature over the course of time, that they do gain greater understanding as they mature in their faith, and they discover the implications of what Christ Jesus has truly done for us. That was something that was real in my own life, and so... I would allow it if the apostles and the elders were struggling with this issue back then in their own life as well. I certainly would not have any problem with it. I think that it would be very difficult for many people to mature in their faith. However, that doesn't mean that they don't have any faith. That doesn't mean that they're not saved. 
I personally believe that a person is saved by trusting and believing in Christ Jesus, not by everything else that they also believe. And if there are some things that are in error, those are things that can be corrected, or maybe they're never corrected. But either way, they will still have a place in the kingdom to come. Now, as you continue to read in Acts chapter 15, I'm going to skip verse 3 and go to verse 4. In Acts chapter 15, verse 4, it says, When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. Right? Now, look at verse 5. Consider verse 5. But some of the sect of the Pharisees, who had believed stood up saying it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. Here in Acts chapter 15 verse 5, in the church, in the council, some of the members of the church referring to the Pharisees who believed that Jesus was the Messiah. These are men who believed in Jesus as the Messiah, who were recognized as Pharisees before they believed, and apparently they were recognized as members of the sect even after they believed. And of course, I can appreciate this. When I was in a stage in my life, when I was pursuing the Pharisaical lifestyle myself, I believed in the Lord Jesus as the Messiah, and I thought that that was valuable in being able to identify the Messiah, but it didn't change a whole lot in terms of how I was going to really live my daily life. Not for a while, not for a few years. But here we have Pharisees as well, who believe that Jesus is the Messiah and who are discovering the implications of what he has actually done for them. But it's here in Acts chapter 15, verse 5, that they raise the issue. And they make the declaration that the Gentiles need to be circumcised and they need to be directed to observe the law of Moses. Now, you need to think very seriously about this statement here. You need to think very seriously about this and consider this. Because it's here in Acts chapter 15 that this question is raised. Why wasn't this question raised before? Why is it? Why is it that the church is dealing with this question now? Why didn't they deal with this question before? This is Acts chapter 15. You know, a lot has happened between Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 15. A lot has happened since Jesus has risen from the dead. We have a reasonable approximation that Acts chapter 15 describes perhaps 15 to 20, 22 years after Jesus was crucified and rose from the dead. This is many years after that. Why is it that they're finally dealing with this question now? I sincerely believe that the reason why they are dealing with this question now is because they never dealt with this question before. If they dealt with this question before, they wouldn't be dealing with this question now. They would have already come to a conclusion with regards to this. They would not be discussing this now, but they are discussing it now. They're discussing it at this stage in the development of the church, which leads me to believe, because this confrontation has not yet occurred, that the other apostles and the elders did believe that a person did need to be circumcised and they did need to be directed to live a life in obedience to the law of Moses. I sincerely believe that they did believe that, because if they didn't believe that, then they wouldn't be asking this question now. They wouldn't be dealing with this issue now. There would be no need to have a meeting like this now. Why would they? They could easily say, look, we dealt with this 15 years ago, or we dealt with this 10 years ago, or maybe 5 years ago. But now they're dealing with it here. When Paul and Barnabas return from their first missionary journey, they are dealing with it right now. I think this is very critical to see, and this gives greater evidence to show 
that the men who came down from Judea, as described in verse 1, who started this conflict to begin with, were true representatives of the apostles and the elders and the church in Jerusalem, that what they were teaching was a true reflection of what the apostles believed, which I believe gives more evidence to explain and show why they would send Paul and Barnabas down there and not these other men back down there to get straightened out by the apostles. Now, of course, the position that people are taking is that the apostles are the true authority. That's the position that people are taking. That's the position that people are assuming. That the apostles, the men who follow the Lord Jesus throughout his ministry, and also the apostle James, who apparently is the head of the church in Jerusalem, James was the brother of Jesus who did not apparently believe in Jesus at all until after Jesus rose from the dead. Before that, he apparently had no interest in what the Lord Jesus was doing except to perhaps ridicule him. And so the apostles and the elders down there were considered to be the greatest authority or the highest authority because of their close proximity or their close relationship with the Lord Jesus. They walked with him, they talked with him, they lived with him, they grew up with him, they followed him throughout his ministry. When he was declaring himself to be the Messiah, they were there as witnesses to his death and his burial and his resurrection. These are most probably the guys who really know the most. They're probably going to have the most valid doctrine. This is a reasonable assumption. I'm not saying that it is an unreasonable assumption at all. However, when you consider this, well, then how would people look at the Apostle Paul? Well, they would not look at him as being such a great authority because he did not walk with Jesus. He did not talk with Jesus. He was not given the credentials that the others were given because of their direct association with the Lord Jesus. That's how the people would have perceived the Apostle Paul. And so they would look at the apostles in Jerusalem as having greater authority than the Apostle Paul. That's how many of the people would have perceived the Apostle Paul. However, we certainly know that that is not true as we continue through the scriptures, that the Lord Jesus gives authority to people on the basis of the truth that he reveals to them, not on the basis of whether they are a brother of his or not, whether they walked with him during his ministry or not, whether they ate with him or not. These things are not the means by which we measure authority in any way whatsoever. The authority in this ministry is only determined by the truth of the living God that he conveys through his people. That's the only means by which anyone should ever assume any authority. And this authority is, of course, given by God himself. It is not given by other people. You can have thousands of people who follow and support and give their attention to one person, but that doesn't mean that that person has any authority in comparison with one person who only has four or five people who ever listen to them at all about the things that are important to them, about the things that the Lord has revealed. The most important thing to understand is that authority is determined by the truth, by the truth of the message. And there is no way to measure that or control that. That is something that is directly given by the living God, and that is something that is confirmed by the Holy Spirit indwelling within a person. And so the Lord our God truly retains all authority. The Lord Jesus retains all authority and power, and technically, he really shares none of it. I have no authority. The only authority that I have is what the Lord Jesus gives to me, if he gives me any at all. And that can easily be taken away. I'm not interested in that kind of authority, really. 
What I am interested in is the truth that he has revealed to me, and I let the truth have its own authority because its authority is established by the Lord Jesus, and that's the most important thing to consider and understand in light of these circumstances. But regardless of that, the council meets. This subject is going to be discussed. This subject is finally going to be addressed, at least in some way. Now, of course, the conclusion of this is not very good. I don't think that the conclusion to this meeting really resolved anything. However, it's important to see that this is taking place. And that's what I want you to see at this time, is to just see that there was a disagreement and they are now going to discuss it. And what I think is very critical to see is that they never really addressed this issue before now. And that should tell you an awful lot about the maturity of the apostles in terms of their understanding of the faith and in terms of their maturity in Christ Jesus, their understanding and their growth in terms of how they would now live as a believer in the true Messiah. How would they live? Well, they would live their daily lives by trying to live in obedience to the Mosaic Law. If you look ahead into Acts chapter 15, verse 19 and 20, you will see the conclusion that James gives. This is his judgment. He says in Acts chapter 15, beginning in verse 19, he says, Therefore it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them to abstain from a few things. And then in verse 21, For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him, since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. In other words, James' judgment, his conclusion, was to just simply not bother those people who were among the Gentiles, not to bother the Gentiles. So when the subject was raised with regards to should a Gentile be circumcised, should they obey the law of Moses, James says, look, let's just not bother, let's not trouble those Gentiles. Let's just encourage them to do these things, make sure that they at least do these things that are found in the law of Moses. And the rest of the law of Moses, if they want to hear about it, if they want to really know the truth, at least in this perspective, then they can go to the synagogues. So James' conclusion is to say, look, don't worry about them because we have the synagogues. And that, of course, should tell you an awful lot about the belief of James and the church there in Jerusalem, that they did still depend on what was being taught in the synagogues, which means that they still held to the beliefs of Pharisaical Judaism. It's just in this context they're saying, look, the result of this council, the judgment of this council is to not worry about the Gentiles, we'll just stick with the Jews and continue to encourage them to live in obedience to the Mosaic Law. You've been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 383-53, Colorado Springs, Colorado, 80937. Or use the donation link on our website, livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Thank you.